You hope and know that you know and you feel that you're very welcome here this evening at West Cohasset Chapel. If you're new here, my name is Joe Franzone and I serve here as the pastor. If you're here and you find yourself without a place of worship tomorrow morning on Christmas, it would be fantastic and it would be our pleasure to see you, see you here at 10.30 a.m. on the Lord's Day and we'll do our best to make sure you're welcome. And we're going to read from the Bible. I'm going to ask you, if you have a Bible, to open it up to Hebrews, the first chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the seat beneath you there in front of you. Turn to page 847. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, page 847. And I'm going to read in just a second the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to stand and we're going to pray and ask God for his help following Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to 3. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through him, he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Amen. May the Lord bless his reading of his word this evening. If you would, let's stand together. I'm going to ask God for his needed help before we begin. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, we know that you know that we are totally dependent on your help. We can't do anything unless you do something. For your son's sake, Please do something. We're in great need to hear your voice, to trust it and obey it so that we may live for Christ in these days in whose name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Teardrops fell on Mama's note when I read the things she wrote. She said, we miss you, son. We love you. Come on home. Well, I didn't have to pack. I had it all right on my back. Now I'm 500 miles away from home. Can't remember when I ate. It's just thumb and walk and wait. And I'm still 500 miles away from home. If my luck had been just right, I'd be with them all tonight. But I'm still 500 miles away from home. Cold and tired and all alone. Yes, I'm still 500 miles away from home. Written by Bobby Bear, Haiti West, Charlie Williams. Believe it or not, 1963. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this song since I listened to it driving in my car with my children last Tuesday evening. Maybe you have two, and I suppose that would make about two of us. It's no doubt a sad song. It's tough for some parents to listen to, and I suspect it's tough for some children away from home to hear. 
that maybe perhaps somewhere along the journey of life, something would amiss. Something happened in them or to them or because of them that set things in a different direction than what everyone had hoped for. And like a dream and maybe a bad dream, he's headed home, but he just can't seem to get there. Now, surely we can understand the despair, the disappointment, the great sadness of heart that meets lyrics like these. Yet in a similar way, though for reasons in reverse, around this time of year, it seems for many that having gotten much of what they wanted, if you like, almost everyone is home and all is well, the Christmas spirit, whatever that is, hasn't attached itself to everyone. Just overhearing, not trying to listen, but just overhearing men and women's remarks on Christmas this week, I was struck by the fact how the immediate response on Christmas is typically disagreeable. I heard things like how busy this time of year is, how dreadful things are, people saying back in my day, we only got two of these and one of those. I heard people say, I just can't wait till this is all over with, that we can go back into our routines. I even heard two grandmothers, I hope they're not here tonight, but I did hear two grandmothers speaking and they said that they couldn't stand Christmas shopping with the grandkids because they just keep getting in the way and they'd rather be left alone. Now sure, every once in a while we'll come across one with a spring in their step about Christmas, but it seems to me to be few and far between. And in all this, I have a very sneaking suspicion that the sense that people have of disappointment in things or despair is more than what many would care to actually admit. That the lives of many people are marked by a quiet, in some cases not so quiet, sense of desperation. And in the kind of environment which most of us live, if honest, such a sense of despair and disappointment has not emerged from or is rooted in failure or disappointment, not along the 500 miles away from home kind, but actually has settled on men and women on account of the reverse, that the things that they have and the things that they have achieved and succeeded and longed to do and did has not brought them the fulfillment that they thought or believed it would having a run in life, and I want you to think about this, having a run of life by which for a long streak in life, things essentially are going their way in life. Yet dissatisfaction, despondency, depression still remain. Now some people rush into things far too quickly because of this. They get a quick buzz, but that's it. So the bonus check is just a check. It's just a check laying on the table. The trip that you took is just a trip. You got accepted into the place, but the place is just a place now. Now, if you're thinking in our day, most people, most of the time, on some level within their framework, get their way and do what they like. They make plans within their framework and they do them. They achieve things, succeed at things, go places. But the things that they had hoped would fulfill them, that would make some sense of their existence, have not done that. Now you just think for a moment in your own life, the things that you determine to do in the course of this year, many of them and many of you, I would venture to say you have done them. Again, you got the raise, you got the house, the man, the woman, you got your way, but you're still empty. I discovered this week by accident about a biography of Paul Simon in 1980. After he made the movie One Trick Pony, he said he went into a period of great depression. He would take a plane from New York to Los Angeles. Then from Los Angeles, he would be driven directly to a psychiatrist's house in L.A. And having arrived there, and I'm quoting now, he would begin his session by laying out the major contradictions of his life. 
He was young, healthy, talented, famous, wealthy, and depressed to the point that he feared he might no longer be able to keep it together. So he was unable to answer some of life's big questions with any degree of satisfaction. Questions like, where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Is there any hope for me at all? Things are going so well. Why am I this way? And to the extent that that represents what Pascal and Augustine and Jesus Christ said concerning there is a God-shaped hole so big in our lives that only God can fill it. Or to put it like Jesus said when he had the last word at a big party. In fact, it was the last day at the last moment of the big party and he stood up and he said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within me. So we can't be surprised then in seasons like this, these seasons of Advent or Christmas, these seasons of our life can do nothing permanently to address men and women's desperation and despondency and depression. In fact, if many were honest in times like these, the way things are presented to us, instead of making things better, they may actually make things grow worse. Question, why would they grow worse? Answer, perhaps because of the things we've been offered at this time of year. Things like Christmas sentimentalism, syrupy, gushy, kind of sticky, kind of nice, but it comes and it burns up as quick as sugar does and it's all too quickly gone. Christmas music, much of which, which is written probably 30 or 40 years ago. Cozy fire, understand that. Hot drink, love that. Music playing, appreciate that. It's not horrible, but it won't perpetually and permanently satisfy the God-shaped void in our heart. A night out with the guys, a night out with the girls, perhaps a new guy, perhaps a new girl, fresh for Christmas. That's not going to do it. Contemporary solutions don't help us. I read an article recently, recently that had this line that said, to keep everyone feeling equal and special at Christmas time, let's recognize the holiday season with songs, you ready? With songs of snowflakes and reindeer. Uh, doesn't that just lift your spirits? Again, I read another article of a New Age bent that said this, and this scares the dickens out of me. Christmas is a celebration of an eternal energy that sits out there waiting for us to channel it into our being. Can you imagine Scrooge with that? But that won't fill the void. But listen, we won't be able to fill the void with a cardboard Christ, a cutout Christ, where someone has suggested to you that, look, you don't have to worry about all the hard stuff about Christ. Forget about the stuff about the incarnation, that Jesus is divinity, God, humanity, man. Don't trouble yourself with all that Old Testament prophecy. You poor thing, you work so hard, doctrines divide. And what we have for you is more of a palatable, digestible, contemporary Jesus. What we have for you is a Jesus with all the hard parts taken out, who's a wonderfully nice fellow. In fact, he's so nice that he fixes things. So with a few of his tricks... Everything will end up just the way you like it. Never you mind that having gotten much of what you wanted, you're still in despair. You're still despondent. You're still depressed and empty. And if you have any sense of all, you know that a Jesus with all the hard parts taken out is frankly no Jesus at all and is inept. 
But this is the Jesus that is more and more being passed along here in the West. And every day, Friday, Jesus, a Jesus that indulged, but a Jesus does not demand. Let me give, a, give you one example. The church in China, communist China, has grown under heavy persecution and suffering at least a hundredfold since the middle of the 20th century. There are now more Christian believers now worshiping God every Sunday in China in that setting than all the churches of Western Europe put together. So you see, when you turn to your Bible, you get a Jesus that's nothing like the cardboard Jesus that the people say, well, he's there for you. He's kind of a genie in a bottle. He's a four-leaf clover. He's a winning number. He's a winning attitude. He's medicine, all mere expressions of human sentiment. The Jesus of the Bible is worth living for and the Jesus of the Bible is worth dying for. In the Bible, when you read it, what you have is God expressing Christ more than what our minds can hold. In the Bible, Christ speaks bluntly. He speaks with distinguishing feature and straightforwardness. This is what Jesus says. He tells us who is with him and who is against him. He says, this is what it means to walk in darkness. And this is what it means to walk in light. And this is what it means to know that you've lied. And this is what truth is. This is what it means to be lost. This is what it means to be saved. Life, death, the broad road that leads to destruction. And the narrow road that leads to, to quote Pilgrim's Progress, life, life, eternal life. In the Bible, Jesus Christ distinguishes heaven as being in the presence of God from hell as being in the absence of God's presence with all the other miseries it holds. You see, when one actually reads the Bible, they find that the things in the Bible are robust, unmistakable, unavoidable. It's like good Christmas cheese, right? Good Christmas cheese has some punch to it. You eat that cheese and everybody knows that you eat it. And the people around you will say, what is that smell? See? And the people will say, you've been reading your Bible. You've been eating that Christmas cheese, haven't you? But if you get the other kind of cheese, if you get the cheese that has no taste, artificially colored, injected, processed, and tasteless, who cares? You go along, you smile, no one knows and no one cares. And that is why so many people can pass through the Christmas season and the scenes that has all the hallmarks of a colorless, injected, processed, tasteless cheese. And the people go on, same as always, a few good deeds, a visit to the old folks' home, coins in a box, a few tears, all is well, but all is not well. Because if you're prepared to take seriously what the Bible says, others will know it and you'll know it. That is why when you come to the Bible, we discover Jesus Christ in such a way that we can't sidestep him by mere sentiment or soppiness or contemporary themes or new age themes or few good deeds, cardboard Christ of our own invention. And you can see there if your Bibles are still open that the way the Son of God is described is not the way many of us are used to. Now, Christmas plays miss much of this much of the time. They have kind of a Jesus who comes in and saves the day. Handel's Messiah did not miss this. Handel's Messiah, written in less than 23 days, as he locked himself in his room with his Bible. He starts with the Old Testament, ends with the New. And so his work that he wrote is all about Jesus all about man's sin, and all about God's saving grace. And that is the story of the Bible. That God has spoke, verse 1, in the past. That's the difficulty with modern men and women is that we pretend that God hasn't really spoken. 
And we like to live under that framework and fashion a life with no real reference to God. Are we religious? Sure. Are we superstitious? Sometimes. Are we Christian? Maybe not. Or we pretend that we have actually channeled into God or all on our own, on our, in our own way. So what we do is pursue a half God with a passionate loyalty, but he is but dead, mute idols. He's a God that can't deal with sin. He's a God that can't deal with the futility of life, of listlessness, of depression, of despondency. And certainly this false God is not a God that can deal with the absolute inevitability of our death. But the story of the Bible declares rather pungently, like that Christmas cheese, that God himself entered our space-time continuum. He entered into the realm of our engagement. And in the past, he spoke at different times and in various ways. You see, God did speak. He had to speak. He chose to speak and he chose to make himself known. For how else, and think with me, how else could we know him and be sure if we were right unless he spoke? So God presents himself as he is, almighty God, who has a son. So God has a son, which means God is a father. He's a father that doesn't hide himself and doesn't say, come and find me. No, we have a God who searches us out and would find us. He is the God who has first spoken and says, I am coming to you. I am going to tell you about me. And that's the story of the Bible, the story of redemption, that God, as a father, reveals himself. Why does God reveal himself as a father? Because like any good dad, he longs for the day when those he has made will call him and live with him as he is. Abba, Father, a daddy God, and not a distant God, and not a God we keep on a leash, and not a God of our imagination. How is this true? Again, it's the story of redemption. God the Father uses many approaches, giving little glimpse of himself along the way. He spoke to people in the Old Testament like this. He spoke to Isaiah in visions. In dreams, as in the case of Jacob, he spoke through plagues and signs and wonders, as in the case of the days of Moses. He also spoke personally to Moses and to Abraham. And the story then is building up along the way in the pages of the Bible, fragmented, because he spoke, but he didn't say everything, but concluded as God has spoken to us by his son. It's something like this. My son Jesus, who came into this world by way of the incarnation, he is my final word in Jesus. I have said everything that is needed to be said. Now, if you're still awake and you understand this, this is fantastic news. All the written word, which we have in the pages of the Old Testament, is now fulfilled in the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, which we can discover in the pages of the New Testament. Which means to the atheists, the decision to deny God is a personal choice. It is a reality that they are fighting against. A reality that has been put there by God himself. Christopher Hitchens, who died recently of cancer, was a very popular atheist. And he fought against this sense of God as a result of creation, as a result of his own conscience, as a result of God speaking in Christ. And he fought against this until his last breath. Why did he deny it? He denied it because sin's dust settles on everything, including our minds. And many fight what they don't, excuse me, many fight what they know to be true. 
Because it goes like this. If God is right, then I'm going to have to settle things with God. And I don't want to settle things with God. So I'll just keep him at bay. And I'll say things like, you see, there really isn't a God. Because if there was a God in this world, this world wouldn't be the way it was. If there was really a God, that would never happen. Or they go along the lines, this whole God thing is a joke. I mean, there's so many religions and you just can't really know. And they would belittle God and keep him at a trivial level as if he hasn't spoken conclusively, finally, and savingly in Jesus Christ. And that's why a man can come to Christmas scene. And typically, this is men. You can come to a Christmas scene built only on sentimentalism, built only on warm feelings, kind of lovey-dovey stuff. And he says, see, honey, okay, let's get over with this. This is greasy kid stuff. And we can just walk away because there really isn't anything there. But there is something there. Read your Bibles. Jesus is not a philosophy. He's not a warm feeling. He's not a program of religious routines that you can pick up and put down at your whim. He's much better. And in one sense, he's much easier than those things. He's a real person who can be known and loved, trusted and obeyed and worshiped. Worship, what a, what a strange word for 21st century men and women, right? Worship, we're gonna actually worship something? Point in fact, the Bible says, verse two there, Jesus is God's son. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. In Jesus' baptism, the voice of God from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. In the transfiguration, the voice of the father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. At Jesus' last hour on earth before the Sanhedrin, they're seeking to corner Jesus with questions that will lead to answers that will allow them to charge Christ with blasphemy. And if they can charge him with blasphemy, then they'll be allotted the death penalty. And then finally someone says, knowing that, so Jesus, are you the son of God or not? And Jesus answers very plainly, Luke 22, you are right in saying that I am. Jesus Christ is God's son. Jesus Christ is the son appointed heir of all things. Verse 2b, everything that belongs to God belongs to Christ. John 16, all that belongs to the father is mine. That is why everyone in this room will one day settle their accounts with Jesus Christ because he is the son and all is his. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. Did you know this? Through whom he made the universe. Jesus Christ made the universe. So then when Mary gave birth to Christ and Jesus' little hands were in the hands of Mary's larger hands, there was another hand there, a, a metaphysical hand to be sure, but it was the hand of the man from Galilee to whom the Bible says nothing was made that has been made without Christ. Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. The glory of God is his visible expression. So when you see Jesus, you see God and all of the greatness, all of the majesty, the glory, the holiness of God that be contained in a body can be found in Jesus. He is the exact representation. He's not an approximation. He's not a guesstimation. But Jesus Christ perfectly mirrors God the Father. Again, listen to your Bibles, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. Think about that. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made him known. 
And Jesus Christ sustains all things by his powerful word, which means at least this, that all the questions that scientists and the astrophysicists have and they put in their box marked, we don't know why, all of those questions find their answer in the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now our time is almost done. So I'm going to close with this. There's, there's nothing trivial about this Jesus. There's nothing inconsequential, petty about this Christ who is presented to us in the pages of the Bible. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says at the very end of verse 3 that after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Meaning what? Meaning Jesus Christ sits down because Jesus Christ is finished with his work. Meaning in his death and only in his death, he has dealt with the undeniable problem of human history. And that is why you cannot cannot understand Christmas apart from Easter. It's impossible. Because in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only do we have the creator, the sustainer, the inheritor, the exact representation of God stepping into time, But we also have this God-man dying on a cross. So the question comes, why this sinless one so great dying on a cross? Answer, dying on a cross to change and save our history. So someone says, well, why can't we just change our own history? Why can't we just save our own history? Are you really prepared to ask that question at this point in the 21st century? Because ultimately the roots of our despair, our despondency is much rooted in the reality that we cannot change our history. So either I am wrong this evening and you can change your history or you're going to have to find someone with a perfect history and you're going to have to hook up with him so that God then would accept his history as our own history. And that is the story of the Bible. That is the full story of Christmas, that this is God's final word. If anyone is in Christ, he has a brand new history. Whose history? Christ's history. So that God and man can be reconciled, as the Christmas hymn says, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, not just another chance and not just a mere makeover, but a total new, indestructible life in and only in Christ. So tonight, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, having come to earth, born in a manger, died on a cross, raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, and is declared to be the soon coming king, is the only person, the Bible, and so God presents to us this evening to save us from all our history. You see, only God could die for sin, and only man should die for sin. And that is what you have in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. One who is God and man and he stands like a colossal giant over all of human history and says these kind words. He says, come to me, all of you with your messed up history, all of you with your flawed history, all of you who are in despair and despondent and I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you, and learn from me. I am gentle and humble at heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. And again, that is the story of Christmas. So dear ones, there is no other Christ but this. So my only question to all of us is essentially this. Is this Christ that I described to you, is this Christ the one that you've hitched your whole life to? Because there's no other one like this. And there's no, only no, no other one that can save you from these things. Only you know, only God knows. If you have been saved this way, you'll want everyone to know. And so this evening, if you hear God's voice, Christmas Eve 2011, please, for Jesus' sake, do not harden your heart. Thank you for your attention. God bless you this Christmas evening. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we ask that we would believe these things, that we would speak often of them to ourselves and to others. And we ask if we are outside of Christ this evening, that we would know it and respond to it for Jesus' sake. Amen.